following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. It wasn't on. Well, that's a good start. Good morning. I wonder why it was a little low on the response. Uh, <laughs> it has been a full day this morning, and uh, I invite you to take your Bibles and let's worship through the reading and teaching of God's Word. Uh, so let's open up to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 31 through 33. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to let you know this sermon is not a standalone sermon. This is continuing in our series in Matthew 13. And to get you caught up on where we've been so far, up to this point in Matthew 13, Jesus has told a series of two parables. We have the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds. Uh, what we have learned up to this point in chapter 13 is Jesus, and this is one of the main points from previous weeks, Jesus is being pursued in two ways, either for him or against him. And this is often revealed in what we've seen up to this point uh, in Matthew 13. This is revealed uh, in the telling of the parables because of the listener's response. The heart that responds for him, like that of the disciples, responds with hearing and understanding and faith. The heart that responds against him, like that of the Pharisees, lunges accusations against Jesus, even goes to the extent of calling Jesus Beelzebul. The disciples, the true followers of Jesus, respond with faith. Our parable today is just three verses. But in those three verses, we have two different parables. But the two parables themselves are similar in structure and also in meaning. So let's dive into these three verses together. Beginning with verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. As you noticed in our verses, specifically the first two, the crop mentioned in the first parable is the mustard seed. The mustard seed was commonly used in Jesus' day in relation to an object or a person being very, very small. Uh, if we could equate it to something in modern times, uh, perhaps the modern equivalent to the mustard seed that Jesus is talking about, uh, that Jesus references in our text, is the seed of the black mustard plant. This plant is found in present-day Israel, and the seed itself is approximately one millimeter in length. That's tiny. Jesus' audience would have understood this and been aware of the size of the mustard seed. Now, would their conclusion be that Jesus is making some sort of scientific definite statement about mustard seeds? Or that Jesus has the secret to agricultural success? I mean, Jesus does seem to speak in definite terms by making the statement in verse 32 that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Well, I can tell you it's not a scientific argument or statement that Jesus is making. The mustard seed is small, but it's not the smallest. That title actually belongs to the jewel orchid. And yes, I had to look up how to pronounce orchid, because I at first said orchid. So i uh, let you know about my knowledge in plants and flowers. I think that's a flower. Um, <laughs> but the jewel orchid seed actually measures a microscopic 0.05 millimeters in length. 
even smaller than the black mustard seed. So the mustard seed may have been the smallest uh, in the region when Jesus was teaching. But Jesus is also not saying in ag- teaching an agricultural secret. It doesn't take much for us to know that in order for a plant to grow, a seed's got to be planted, right? Now, every now and then, you run into people who have secrets. Uh, one example, uh, my wife and I, years ago, planted tomato plants. And we used the help of her uh, grandfather. And his secret uh, is using diapers to plant the seeds uh, because the diapers absorb the water. Now, his secret is now well-known and blasted out for anybody to be able to know that, but that was one of his secrets. Uh, and I will say it seemed to work because we can't grow anything uh, up to that point and still can't, but those tomatoes grew somehow, some way. What Jesus is saying is a spiritual statement because he says in our verses today that the mustard seed actually represents the kingdom of heaven. And so it begs the question to ask, with the seed being the smallest of seeds, as Jesus says in verse 32, and the fact that it represents the kingdom of heaven, does that mean that the kingdom of heaven is small in physical size? Or are there certain limitations to the kingdom of heaven? Well, if by limitations we mean that there are restrictions, yes. Before we dive too deep into the weeds, we must acknowledge that we live on this side of the New Testament. So we have a greater understanding of the kingdom to come. The disciples and the listeners underneath Jesus' voice aren't on that side or this side of the New Testament. Jesus' listeners would have had an understanding that the kingdom of heaven is something that they will tangibly see in their lifetime. The Messiah would be one to reestablish Israel as the dominant government over Rome. They would cling to Isaiah's prophecy, what we often read at Christmas time from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The disciples also had this understanding as well. They even argued over who would have the greatest position in the kingdom to come. You see that in Luke 22. The disciples and other listeners were thinking of a physical, tangible kingdom. But the way that we understand the kingdom today is the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, the new earth that is to be established, that is to come one day in the future at some point. We are not sure when, nor do I think any of us know the exact date, but it is coming. Christ promised it, and Christ is sure on his promises. Amen? But one of the few places in the Bible that actually discuss the physical size of the kingdom is from John's Revelation, the last book of the Bible. But even then, it still doesn't provide a clear enough idea of the physical size. And again, we shouldn't get lost in the weeds. Uh, A lot of our culture today likes to travel down wormholes and conspiracy theories. Please do not travel down that wormhole. The reason is because John uses much symbolism in the book of Revelation, and it's hard to be exact and precise when it comes to measurements um, that John uses. I do want to point out one unique thing that John does say in Revelation 21 about the new heaven, about the new Jerusalem. He says this in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The listeners in our text today, again, envisioned a government that would be tangibly in front of them 
a governmental rule, with the temple being somewhat of the central figure of that government. If we could equate it to something today, it would be like that of the White House for our nation. But the reality is there's no need for a temple in the new heaven and new earth because the fullness of the holiness of God will dwell. Just like the new Jerusalem will have no need for sunlight or the moon because of the glory of God. The fullness of that glory will be experienced in that place. But the question still remains, are there restrictions? Yes. The restrictions may not be the sheer physical size of the kingdom of heaven because we're not clear and the Bible is not clear. And I don't want to go where the Bible is not clear on. But there are restrictions on entry into the kingdom of heaven. And scripture is very clear on who is allowed in and who is not. I want to read a series of passages. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus' words. Matthew 13, 22. As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Paul says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Those that believe in their own self-righteousness, that are hostile towards God, the sexually immoral, that's a tongue twister, the impure, those who covet, who idolize, who verbally or physically abuse others, who attack the Imago Dei, the very image of God that is intrinsic in who we are as his creation, those who are greedy, those who rob others, who are caught up in the cares of the world, those who are sinners will not on their own inherit the kingdom of heaven. So if sinners do not inherit the kingdom on their own, what happens? Where do they end up? What are they going to face? If they're not allowed entry in, they must be allowed entry into somewhere else. As Colossians 3, 6 says, those who believe in their own self-righteousness, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The restrictions on who can enter the kingdom of heaven are heavy. And the list could go on and on. Because left to ourselves and our own devices, none of us would understand, receive, or enter the kingdom. Jesus says earlier in Matthew 13 when he's teaching about why he's teaching in parables. Why is he teaching in this way, in this format? Because he says to his disciples, the understanding has been given to you. They can't understand on their own. Their understanding must be a gift. 
None of us would understand. Romans 3.23 says this words, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. In our sinful, sinful natural state, the reality is, is we don't even want the kingdom of heaven. We don't want God. Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So it appears, if we were to stop there, to Jesus' listeners and to us as well, that we are hopeless. With the restrictions on entry into the kingdom of heaven being what they are and us being who we are, only a miracle could bring us into the fold. It would seem that Jesus is teaching about a kingdom that none of his disciples or followers would be able to experience with him. He is teaching of a place that is inaccessible on human effort alone. It's almost like he is teaching of a kingdom that only he has the key to. A divine miracle must take place in order for us to experience Jesus and the kingdom in all of its fullness. In the Gospel of John, there's a story about a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was curious about entry into the kingdom as well. And so he asked Jesus, who is allowed into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Bless you. The divine miracle that must take place in order to enter the kingdom is being born again. Or if you want to call it regeneration. We must become a new creation because the old self can't. It doesn't matter how much you attend church, how much money you give to the church, how many good things you think you do. You cannot do it on your own. You can't. We must be born again. We must become a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In a way, our, in our text, Jesus is pointing towards the future because the reality is that without him and his coming death and the life that he lives, his coming resurrection, his coming ascension, and his coming again, we cannot enter the kingdom that he is preaching. Jesus, through his sinful life, gruesome death, shed blood, bodily resurrection, and ascension, and promised return through the power and work of the Holy Spirit, redeems us. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice it doesn't say you were sanctified and you were washed and you were justified by what you did or didn't do. It is all because of Jesus, as we often sing, that we are alive. Ephesians 5, 8, For at one time you were darkness, 
but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For his disciples, they don't understand all of this yet. Nor will they for some time. The disciples aren't aware of the full meaning of what is about to come. Verses 31-33 happen before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before the ascension, and before the sending of the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is to come, and he's also preparing us today for what is to come. The kingdom that is to come. But us, on the other hand, we have no excuse. We have the scriptures. In fact, it's probably sitting in a pew right in front of you. And I can promise you, if you want to take it home, you can take it home. You have our permission to take that Bible home with you. We have the scriptures. We can see how this story plays out from beginning to end. We know what's going to happen in the future. So my question for you today is where do you stand? Will you be allowed into the kingdom? Have you placed your faith and trust in what Christ has done for you? Where does your heart lie? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think there's also a second component to the size of the seed as well. Again, the first, I believe, is the reality of who enters the kingdom, how they enter, and who does not enter the kingdom. The second component is the size of the band of misfits known as Jesus' disciples. At the time in which Jesus is speaking, there are few who believe and speak of the kingdom that he is talking about. You've got John the Baptist and a handful of his disciples, and now you have Jesus and his But surrounding this small group of believers, this small group of followers, this small group of disciples is a myriad of religions. Specifically during the life of Jesus, it was not Greek mythology these early followers were competing with. Some in the early church, yes, this church were planted throughout uh, different nations and different countries and different cities. But his listeners and his disciples mainly would have been exposed to the false religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we both know that these groups had large followings and were held in high regard. They were able to function with the Roman Empire. They were the ones that many in Jesus' day would have said had it all together. The Sadducees had the wealth and the money. And the Pharisees had the social approval and appearance. And here are the disciples of Jesus, a group of fishermen and a tax collector, minuscule in number when compared to the dominant religions of their day. It was a band of 12, and one of the 12, Judas, would be one that actually betrayed the leader, Jesus. 
Jesus' words about the growth of the mustard seed are important for us to note and also were important for his disciples as well. Jesus lets his disciples know that when the seed that is the kingdom of heaven is planted and sowed, that even despite the seed's small stature, remember if we had an equivalent for today, one millimeter in length, that's tiny, that it will grow to be larger. In fact, it will grow so large that it will be larger than all the garden plants and at its maturest state becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is true of the leaven that Jesus talks about in the parable of the leaven in verse 33. Although minuscule in size, the leaven expands throughout the dough, helping it to rise. These words must have provided life for the disciples. And Jesus continues to use familiar language to encourage and challenge his listeners and his disciples. Jesus discussed earlier with his listeners the idea of sowing seed in good soil. I can't help but to think that the man in our parable today must be one that is considered good soil. He receives the kingdom of heaven. He hears the kingdom of heaven. And he understands it. He understands it. And from that grace-given understanding and hearing, the man bears fruit and yields. And unlike bad soil, the birds of the air do not come down and devour the seed like we see in Matthew 13, 4. Instead, the birds of the air come and make nests in the tree produced from the mustard seed. Jesus reassures his followers to not be mesmerized by the size of the cult followings, false religions, and pagan religions of their day but rather to be encouraged because one day the kingdom of heaven and its message will spread out to all nations. In fact, the birds that Jesus mentions in verse 32 is actually a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. We see in Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. The kingdom of heaven will include Israel, yes, and true followers of Jesus, yes, but it will also include Gentiles, which is foreign to his listeners. Jews and Gentiles mix like oil and water. I think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I got a chance to teach about that this past week in Wigalpa. Gentiles, or excuse me, Jews and Samaritans did not mix. But I love what John 4 says. Jesus tells his disciples, we have to go through Samaria. The normal route was around Samaria. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, no, we're going through Samaria. So the kingdom of heaven includes, yes, Israel, but it includes all people. These Jewish men believed that salvation was not only from the Jews, but also that salvation was singularly for the Jews. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13, give us a great description of the kingdom of heaven and a great explanation. 
Paul says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus You who were once far off have been brought near by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is preparing his disciples to take the message of the kingdom of heaven out into the world. He is letting them know that the message of the kingdom of heaven will reach to levels and places that is beyond their greatest imagination. This is Jesus' encouragement for despite how insignificant and minuscule and small being a follower of Jesus may feel at first for these individuals, for these disciples. This ragtag group of men, even in their denial, their failures, their betrayal, their persecution, their self-doubt, their fear, their pain and suffering, with the Spirit's help and guidance, would advance God's purposes, promises, and God's kingdom with the message of the gospel. Before Jesus would ascend into heaven, he speaks these words to his disciples in Matthew 28, often known as the Great Commission, beginning with verse 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And and this is just such an interesting part to me. They saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the question that I often like to ask our students, so what? We got it. The disciples doubted. But they were called by Jesus to follow him. They followed him, even in their doubt. And he sent them into the world. That's awesome. Well, the commission that Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew 28 is also the commission that God gives each and every one of his believers today as well. But our setting is slightly different We are born at such a time that Christianity, by most polls that you take or that you read, is still overwhelmingly the dominant religion in our nation. I do believe this is still true. If you don't think so, when you leave this morning and head home or to lunch for your Father's Day lunch, I want you to count how many churches there are between here and home. Now, I'm not saying that every person who responds in a poll or attends church is a true follower of Jesus. I'm not naive. As we discussed a few weeks ago, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We see that in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. But despite being the dominant religion, there is still room for advancement for the kingdom in our culture, in our context, in our lives today. Be encouraged to go out today and to make disciples. 
We can look back at the history of Christianity and see many great and brave Christians who took a stand to advance the kingdom of heaven despite their numbers being minuscule in comparison to everyone else. The Apostle Paul beheaded because of his faith. Peter reportedly crucified upside down. Polycarp burned at the stake. Jim Elliot murdered. Stephen, the fir- attributed to be the first Christian martyr in Acts 7, stoned to death for believing in Christ. John Wycliffe, who translated the Latin Vulgate into common tongue because he believed that all believers should have access to the scriptures, not just the religious elite. He was persecuted after he died. He was persecuted during his life, but one thing that stands out about his persecution is the fact that he stood against papal authority, and despite not being burned at the stake, which is what called for standing against the Pope, his dead body was exhumed and burned with some of his writings. Where we sit today in our pews with our really cold air conditioning, we should be thankful for how God has used so many brothers and sisters before us. I often think when you come into a sanctuary, no matter how old the church may be, I wonder if you're an answer to a prayer that someone prayed hundreds of years ago or 50 years ago or 60 years ago. We look back at believers who were brave in their faith. And I don't want to lift them up on a pedestal. But I want to ask the question, what gripped them to the point that they were willing to die for the sake of Christ and the advancement of the kingdom? What what gripped their heart and their minds? They each had specific reasons, reasons, but at the center of the grip on their hearts was Christ himself. Their hearts were captured by Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the beauty and the wonder and the awe that we have when we think about what Christ has done for us. We don't deserve Him. He doesn't need us. We don't desire heaven. We don't desire God. We have hearts of stone. But God in His love and in His grace and in His mercy sent His only Son to live a life that you and me can't live. To die a death and absorb God's wrath for sin. Shed His blood for us. That is what gripped their hearts. And they were willing to take a stand for the advancement of the kingdom. Not because it's a great story, but because it's a reality. Do you see Christ and the cross with awe and beauty? Or do we compartmentalize Jesus to just an hour on Sunday? Is he only beautiful for a short amount of time? And I'm not advocating for you to be someone who just simply falls down in worship for 24 hours a day. No, I understand. Listen, you got to eat, right? Okay? I'm hungry now. (laughs) Just thinking about food. 
But does God affect and does Jesus affect how you view your job? How you view your coworkers? How you view your friends and the friends that you have and the things that you do? Does he affect how you use your tongue and your voice? Does he affect how you post on social media? Does he affect every part of your life? Because if we're all honest with ourselves, as Christians, yeah, we're messed up. And there's always room for growth. And the beautiful thing is sanctification is a lifelong joy that God invites us into. Early believers had a cause to live that was greater than themselves. They were a new creation. They were born again. And because of that, they wanted to share the same message that changed their life with the world around them. But before Wycliffe and before Paul, slightly before Paul, and before Polycarp, there were 12 And God used 12 disciples to change the world. I love the account in Acts 17, and this includes the Apostle Paul. I want you to hear these words in verses 1 through 6. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and, oh boy, Apollonia, almost looks like Apollonia, um, <laughs> they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he would say, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous In taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting these words, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Church family, this past week in Wegolpa, Nicaragua, was a blessing. And I can't thank each and every one of you enough for your prayers and support and encouragement. But there's one thing that stood out, one thing among many that stood out to me while being there. And we've already sang about it this morning. God's faithfulness. All my life, you have been faithful. As I learned about the story of La Casa de Mi Padre, I learned about Maricela and Jeffred, how they saw the need in their community of hunger. Not just physical hunger, that's present, but also spiritual hunger. Neither of them knew how they were going to meet the physical need, but they knew that the greater need was the lost hearts of those who may be physically hungry. So they understood the great commission and the call that God has and command that God has for us as believers. And what did they begin to do? They began to feed children. Doing whatever it takes 
because they were being obedient to what God calls us to do as well. And I can't tell you how many times Mario Sella said, we just trusted that God would provide. I remember that first bus ride from the hotel to the church. And you can see a picture of the church behind me during one of the, uh, the baking classes. I remember that first bus ride, and we're riding up to the church, and we have to go through what Maricela and Jeffrey called, and, and Eduardo, our translator, the barrio. I can't roll my R's like they can. But I remember as the road went from stone to dirt and rocks and trash. And I was anxious and excited to see the church that God has allowed our church family to plant in Wigalpa. And on our way there, Marisa let us know that, that the churches in the community there are too afraid to step into the barrio that we're going into. They're too afraid to reach out to this community. They just expect them to come to them. We pull up to the church, and this is my first time going, and this is my wife's first time seeing the church. And we pull up to the gate, and tears just begin to flow from our eyes. My wife, years ago, and a group of people went down to Wigalpa and prayed over that very same land. And what was an old makeshift trash dump is now a church. And it's a place where physical needs are met. But most importantly, it's a place where disciples make disciples. I tell you that story about Maricela and Jeffred to encourage you as a believer. Not all of us were called to go to Wigapa. But God has each and every one of you in a place exactly where he wants you to be. The exact office that you're supposed to be in. The exact family that you're supposed to be in. God knows our steps I encourage you to step out. Take your next step as a believer. If it's joining this local body, take that next step. If it's getting into a life group, take that next step. If it's not laughing at a crude joke with your group of friends, take that next step. And that next step to you may seem insignificant. But I want to encourage you that the body of Christ and in the body of Christ, not one of you and no step that you take closer to Christ is insignificant. How are you and I advancing the kingdom of heaven? Because the reality is one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Philippians 2, said that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The kingdom of heaven is coming. I don't know when. It could be today. It could be the next hour. It could be the next minute. It could be the next days. I don't know. 
but it is coming. But until that day, believer, may we run this race that God has us on with endurance. Hebrews 12 tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What a beautiful thing when the kingdom of heaven grows. And what a privilege and joy that we, as believers, get to have a role in advancing the kingdom. Let us not waste our opportunities. Let's make disciples who make disciples. Let's challenge each other to grow. Let's align our hearts with God's heart. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.